Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. I am so thrilled to announce my Live Inspired in studio with John O'Leary. If you like the Live Inspired podcast, you will love joining me and our community in studio. I created in studio a monthly live virtual experience as a place to share inspiration, ideas, tools, and time to have a discussion on topics that matter most to you. Yes, you. I've never offered anything like this before, and registration is open for a limited time, so don't delay. Learn more and register now, that's right now, at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash in studio. That's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash in studio, or if it's easier for you, go to johnolearyinspires.com and then check out the rest. We'll lead you to the landing page. We will lead you into the in studio, and it will launch you into the best of your life going forward. I can't wait to see you live in studio, my friends. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. Yes, you will hear profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, but more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, the goal is to have guests on this show that will inspire you, yes, you, to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can live inspired. Are you ready for today's episode? I get to introduce you to a man whose books I've been reading for more than a decade, whose podcast I love, whose speeches absolutely turn me on, and whose heart is about as pure as anyone I've ever bumped into. His name is Andy Andrews. He is a number one national best-selling author. He's a phenomenal human being, and we get to interview him and spend a little bit of time with him today at the Live Inspired studio. So my friends, buckle up because here we go. Welcome to Live Inspired, our friend, Andy Andrews. John, how are you doing, man? <laughs> I, I'm honored to be here. Man, it, it is a joy. I, I think I'm your biggest fan outside of uh, the people who have the last name Andrews, like your, your own family members. <laughs> I'm a huge fan. I've read everything you've written. I've watched everything online that you've shared. And, uh, dude, it's an honor to have you in our well, community. Well, you sound like a glutton for punishment. I, I appreciate that, though. They're very kind words. Thank you. Well, it's true, man. And I, I know that you've written a, a, a few books, I think more than 20 now, more than three and a half million copies in circulation, a successful speaker and successful man. And yet that's not where your story begins. It, it doesn't begin on the front of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or in front of you know 30,000 in an auditorium listening to how great your stories are. Uh, it's from, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was tough. I mean, I, I, had, I had a normal upbringing. You know, everything was very middle class and all. But I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to when I turned 19, when it seemed like everything kind of turned over. You know, let, let's slow dance our way toward age 19, because I think even setting that up is important. Take, take us back to what it's like to be a kid. What's little Andy Andrews' life like growing up? 
you know, it, it was odd. I, I grew up in in just just a, a medium sized town. I, I really, when I think of growing up, I grew up in Alabama. When I think of growing up, I think of Dothan, Alabama, specifically because that was where we were from my I, like third grade to ninth grade, and so a lot of the uh, friends and the teachers I remember, and you know, a lot of decisions then, and and uh, had a, had an eighth grade teacher, Mrs. McLeod, little African American lady, just awesome lady, and she was the first one to tell me that I could write, mm-hmm. first one to tell me I was funny. And uh, one one day I was I was kind of, I was kind of uh, you know, now I was not the class clown, John, because yes. the class clown is the guy who runs naked across the football field in freezing weather. I was the one who talked him into doing it. And, <laughs> and so I, one day I said something in Mrs. McLeod's class, and everybody laughed, and she looked at me, and she said, out. And I said, ma'am? She said, out, 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 in, out of my class. And, I, and I, it's, I was horrified, but I walked out and you know into the hall, and she followed me out. And she closed the door, and she turned around, and she said, okay, you're funny. Okay, I mean you are really funny. You you make me laugh. You crack me up. But you got to give me the class yes. sometime. You got to learn. Uh, you got to learn to to time it. Don't do it all the time because it's not as funny. You can pick your moments, and you need to write this stuff so it'll be documented because this is really good stuff. But you can't just you, you, you can't just like just throw it out there all the time. Now get back in there and act like I got all over you. Mm-hmm. She was awesome. She's your eighth grade teacher, Andy? Yeah. I've got, uh, to this day, you know, Miss McLeod passed away last year, and to this day, I have a picture of her up in my office. I'm hoping and assuming at some point you came back into her life and let her know what she did for you. Oh, buddy. Absolutely, I did. Tell me about uh, high school. What, what's uh, the former class clown, now writer, and uh, you know, everything else that you have going on? What are you like in high school, Andy? You know, I was... I was one of those kind of guys in high school that I don't know that a lot of people remembered. Yes. You know, I was funny with my friends, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a jock. I wasn't the real smart guy. I wasn't the nerd. I wasn't one of the druggies. I wasn't in the band. I, I you know, I was just kind of there. And, uh, I, I, I never really, I, to be honest, I never was crazy about school uh, it, you know, wasn't, I, I was always kind of in my mind outside at school and, and, uh, but I was really interested in, I, you know, I was a little kid and I talked all the time, John, yeah. I mean, I'm not kidding you. My parents, when I was a little kid, my parents would say, um, you know, they have friends over and they say, uh, if you'll sit down for a minute, we promised Andy, if, he, if he'd just take five minutes with you, then, uh, then he would go to his room and be quiet. And, you know, I'd come in and go, All right, hello, ladies and gentlemen. And people were, like, just stunned. And, and so, I, you know, I grew up kind of wanting to talk and wanting to be a speaker, but I, I, I didn't have anything to say. And so that'll kill a speaking career. Tell me, what, what was it that your parents instilled in you as a child? One thing my dad instilled in me was not quitting. Not quitting. I remember in the sixth grade, I, I played football. I played football in the sixth grade, and that was the only year I played football, which is odd to me, and I don't know if you know this, but, but, but right now, it's, it's kind of one of the things I'm proud about, I, I suppose. Uh, right now, I, I have my hand in the last nine college football national championships. Yes, I do know this. 
Uh, did you? Okay, in just you know, working with the coaches or the teams or them using my material. But the last night, it was just kind of funny to me because you know, my wife says, "What you know? What do you know? What are you doing?" And I say, "Oh, well, you know, I go in with Urban Meyer and Nick Saban, and I say, sit down, guys. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. I I played football in the sixth grade, <laughs> and she, she laughs. I, and obviously, I don't do that, but." But in the sixth grade, I hated football. I, I got to tell you, man. I, you know, I thought it would be a good idea because I like to watch it. But man, I got headaches. I, I was not very good, and you know, you get hit in the head. Yes, and I was already kind, always kind of prone to headaches or something. Anyway, and my, my you know, my, oh, I had a friend, Bob Woodall, in Dothan, Alabama, and he was a great athlete, and he just thought it was the funniest thing to hit me in the head. But my dad would not let me quit. I mean, I cried. I did everything. You know, I vomited, acted like, you know, and my yes. dad said, look, you can, you, you don't have to play next year, but you're not going to quit. You, you're not going to quit. And I mean, I, man, I pulled every trick in the book. And, and it was years later that my mom told me, she said, you know, your, your dad probably cried more that year than you did. And I was like, hmm. what? You know, I mean, I was like horrified. He, it, he, he was killing me. And, and I, I was probably 17 or 18. I had a conversation with my dad and I said, mom said that you were upset that year. And he said, oh, it was awful. And I said, why didn't you let me quit? Yes. You know, I'm a kid. They're killing me. And he said, you know what? He said, I look at what you are becoming and... Quitting is a habit. You know, quitting something is a habit. And he said, I look around today in our society, and there's no penalty for quitting anything. You can quit anything as long as you persist. You know, you just try a little bit, and everybody goes, oh, you tried. You tried, okay. that's right. And he said, but when you persist without exception, you know, then there's something in you that figures out a way. There's something lasting. And he said... I wanted to make sure that you did not develop uh, the habit of thinking that, you know, that, well, there's an option. I can always quit. And, and you know, uh, you know what happened with my parents, John, mm -hmm. but years later, it, it's amazing that years later, my very first New York Times bestseller was The Traveler's Gift. Mm. And, and uh, you know, that book's in 40 languages and just, I don't know, it's sold a, a million in the U.S., just in the U.S., and it's all over the world, and and uh, Super Bowl teams use it, World Series teams, college football teams, businesses, people give it away as client gifts, they give it away in graduation, and I say that not, not to brag, I say that to, to make the point that 51 publishers turned it down. Right. You know, and I, I don't know if you... you some I didn't know there were 51 publishers, man. You yeah, really went out on a limb to find all 51. Right. I mean, I mean, take just kind of grab hold of that, you know, because I'm not talking about 10 or 12 or 15 publishers turn me down, you know, in, in a couple of months. Three and a half years of sending this manuscript out and getting these, you know, rude rejection letters back, and, and 51 publishers said what I had written was not worth putting on paper. But I always remembered the sixth grade and my dad. And my dad said, it's about 
what you're becoming. And, you know, you're not looking at quitting. You're looking to find a way where there is no way. Hmm. And Andy, you brought it up. Tell us what happened to your mom and dad. Yeah, my I was 19, and my my uh, mom died of cancer, and my dad was killed in a car accident that same year. So it was a that was a crazy year, crazy time, crazy time. You know, and take us through that, man. So you, you, I think you lost your mother first. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I lost my mother first, and and uh, you know, it's one of those kind of things that. You know, with cancer, we knew it was going to happen. We just didn't know when, and we but we knew, and and it went the way we we thought. And but then my dad, you know, that was man, that was a phone call in the middle of the night, and and so I had one that was that that long drawn out, and then one that was very quick. And but the bottom line is. You know, it, it was it was awful, and, I, and of course, I've always had the ability to take a bad situation yes. and make it worse, and <laughs> and I did, <laughs> I did, I made some bad choices, you know, over the next couple of years. And, and, um, before you even talk about any of those choices or the redemptive aspect of it all, before mom gets sick and before dad uh, and that call wake you up in the middle of the night, w- were you making bad choices or were you on the right path? And then you slipped big time off after tragedy strikes. You know, I was pretty, I was pretty well on a on a good path. I just was not on a uh, a very purposeful path. And when I say I made bad choices, there was no pathology involved. I mean, because I I ended up when I say I made bad choices. After a couple of years, I ended up literally homeless before that was even a word. You know, um, 35 years ago, nobody was talking about homeless people. That wasn't a term anybody used. But I was sleeping under a pier on the Gulf Coast and in and out of people's garages, which is not safe or smart. And sometimes, you know, I'll be on, you know, CNN or or Good Morning America, or some of these shows, people will ask me, especially when I'm on these news channels, you know, a lot of them are up in New York, yes. and, and um, I'll be on these shows, and, and, and they'll ask me, it seems like, it, it, it kind of drives me crazy, because they'll say, you know, being a former homeless yes. person, <laughs> what advice do you have for the homeless today? You know, the first thing I want to say is move. <laughs> get out. If, if, you're, if you're homeless in New York City, get out. You know, <laughs> go south. Move to a small <laughs> town where you're the only homeless person. Uh, the, 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 the churches will compete to help you. Uh, but but the, the thing they don't understand when they ask me something like that is there was – there was no pathology involved with what I, what I was going through. I, you know, I wasn't addicted to anything. I, I wasn't drinking. I, you know, I, I wasn't just out of prison or yes. anything like that. I just didn't have any money, and and I had put myself in a position just because of pride that I wasn't going to ask for any help because see, I had I had I had quit college. Um. You know, when when my mom was just about to die and things were kind of bleak, and I had this idea I wanted to be a comedian or a speaker. I wanted to be a speaker, but I also knew there's no way. I mean, I wanted to be a speaker, but, you know, when you're 20, who yes. wants to hear what you've got to say? And and so I, I knew the only way I could really get on stage was comedy. And so 
you know, I quit school and and it's like the world caved in. You know, everybody went insane except my parents. My parents were actually okay with it, but everybody else was. You're going to be a what? You're going to hell. You get. You know, you're you're ruining your life. You're. you're do you understand this? Do you understand mm-hmm. what you're doing? Are you just so stricken by grief you can't even think? Mm-hmm. And 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 um, and so you know, then my mom dies, and then my dad dies, and and uh, being the financial genius that I was. At the time, mm-hmm. I, I got twenty five hundred dollars uh, in insurance from my dad, and um, being the financial genius I was, I used it all to buy a trailer. Um, mm. Now this was now this was not a mobile home. There's a difference. Okay, this was a trailer. It, it, it was a nice trailer. It had a hole in the floor in the kitchen, so I never had to open the door to sweep it. I just sweep toward the hole. But, you know, it never occurred to me I'd have to have money to move it or yes. to put it somewhere. I, mean, so I, I was an idiot. And, and behind the eight ball right away. And so people say, well, gosh, how did, you, how did you get to be homeless? And I can tell you this story in about 10 seconds, really. I mean, it took a couple of years to go from that to really, truly living under the pier. But the the bottom line is, I you know at first I had a uh, I had a trailer and a car. Yes. Then I had a trailer and a motorcycle. Then I had a motorcycle and a tent. Then I had a tent. Then I was under the pier, and that's kind of how it so, happened. But Andy, my question for you, unlike the New York question that you've been asked when you've been in the big studios, <laughs> is what what would you say to those of us who see the homeless rather than how do you fix them? It sounds to me like the challenge that you're putting forward is actually, hey, how do we see something differently than we currently do? Yeah, I, you know, there is, there is with most of the homeless uh, that you, and most of the people that we consider homeless, you know, you walk down the street in New York City or Washington, D.C., those people, there is a pathology there. I mean, you can look at, at several instances, uh, you know, high-profile instances, there was a guy a few years ago that had this unbelievable radio voice. Do you remember that? Just unbelievable. In fact, you can Google radio voice homeless person, and mm-hmm. you can see this guy. And he would stand beside the road, and he would lean in and go, Sunny 105, it's 6 o'clock. You know, and, and he had this voice, and you were just like, oh, my God. Well, it went viral on the Internet, and, of course, he had job offers all over. He was on Today Show or Good Morning America or whatever, and he, you know, got a job and got clothes, and and um, within a month he's back on the streets. Yes. And and so it's over and over again we find we cannot fix somebody. We can offer opportunity, but the fixes come from inside ourselves. And that's true of ourselves too. So, you know, as, as we listen today, Andy, many of us driving our vehicles down the road or listening on a podcast channel, how, how did you begin to fix yourself? What changed inside? Who changed as they showed up around you? And, and ultimately, what will it mean to the rest of us? But what started happening under the pier or in strangers' garages that changed you from the inside out? Yeah, you know, John, honestly, I have a couple of different answers for that. I have the answer that, and maybe three or four answers. I have the answer that I would have told you 
when I got out from under the pier? I would have the answer I would have told you like 10 years after that. I would have had the answer I told you five years ago. And I have the answer now because time allows you to look and really seek wisdom and, and understand what you have gone through so that you can help other people with what you've learned. Mm. And, and, and so the, the obvious thing that happened to me at that time was I met this old guy. Uh, under my pier late one night, scared me to death. Yes. Uh, you know, I was like, what? Because I didn't think anybody knew I was under there. And uh, long story short, this old guy started me reading. Um, he, this, he was this old guy. We never knew where he, where he came from. We did, it would, you know, we'd seen him in and out of town. We didn't know where he stayed when he was in town. Didn't know where he went when he left. Didn't know how old he was. Didn't know what was in the suitcase he carried around. Uh, he always seemed clean, happy, nice, but odd. Yes. And we called him Jones, not Mr. Jones. We just called him Jones. And um, and he he was the, the first person really to take an interest in me at that time and, and tell me the truth about myself. And and so he started me reading, gave me three biographies. And I hated biographies because I they made me read them in school. I saw didn't see the point. And so I knew there were biographies when he handed them to me because I could see on the on the cover it said it was just little orange biographies. It said Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. one of them said George Washington Carver, and one of them said uh, Will Rogers. And I said to him, I I remember saying biographies, and he said, No, no, these are adventure stories. These are mysteries and romances and thrillers. Mm-hmm. And they're all true. And I said, Oh. Okay, and and uh, he said, yeah, you know, when you get through with them, take them back to the library. Yes. And so I, I started reading Churchill that night, not really because I wanted to. I only started reading it because this is the only guy paying any attention to me, and I wanted to be able to say, when he said, hey, you're reading the books, to say, oh, yeah, I'm reading Churchill. I, so I had no intention of really reading it, but I got going, and and right, right at the first, I remember reading uh, Winston had met a little girl named Clementine when he was a child and never knew that one day she would become his wife. And and I remember thinking, well, there's the romance, right? And um, and I get to the end of the chapter, and, and every chapter, it's kind of short chapters, mm-hmm. but every chapter would end with something like, and if Winston had only known what was on the other side of the door, he would have never opened it. And I'm like, ha. God, turn the page. Yeah, I have to turn the page. And and you get to the World War II stuff, and there's spies, and I'm like, there's the thriller. So I I saw it. Now, this is odd, but I knew that I was thinking that because he had said that. But I was still thinking it. Mm. And I ended up reading over 200 biographies of these just happy, influential, financially secure, great people. Um. (laughs) <laughs> when I say great people, I always think they really don't do uh, books on any other kind of people, usually. I, I guess there's not a loser section. That's right. The noble. It's but, not, not well visited. Any, what was driving you to keep reading 197 books later? I, well, I, I became interested. Number one, I had a lot of time. You know, I worked. I had a bunch of different jobs. I was cleaning fish and selling bait and taking people fishing for money. But, you know, heat of the day and at night, I, I, I had a lot of time. But I got interested because I started seeing a pattern 
If I, you know, I told you earlier, we were talking, and I said that I had, uh, I always kind of saw, I thought in a parallel way or something, I could see, I saw things other people didn't see. Or, mm-hmm. And and I started noticing that, that uh, there seemed to be a pattern emerging, and I was pretty sure after 60 or 70 books, but it, it seemed like all these people had seven things that, and these weren't. And but it was odd to me. They weren't characteristics. They weren't habits. They weren't seven habits. They weren't. Uh, they weren't seven ideas. They weren't. They weren't mine. I didn't even think they were remotely original. Uh, but it, I and I and I just called them things. I didn't know what they were mm-hmm. really. But um, but it it also became obvious to me after a while because I wrote them down and it became obvious to me after a while that everybody, all these people, just about everybody had all seven of them, but I didn't think that any of them knew they had all seven. Mm -hmm. I think that most of them had harnessed two or three very effectively, and they kind of had the others. And I, but I, as I would, you know, stock, stack up the books, I, I would, I started thinking, what happens to somebody who knows all seven? What, what if somebody, what if one of these people had known all seven? What if, you know what happens to a kid if somebody's parents knows all seven and teaches that kid yes. all seven when they're growing up? What happens to that kid? And, and you know, long story short, I, I, I those are the seven things I started throwing in my life to yank myself out from under that pier. And years later, they became the basis for the for the novel, The Traveler's Gift, because the these seven things I, I finally realized were seven principles, and and principles always work. Yes. Right? Right. It is a curious thing about principles. Principles always work, but people never consider this. Principles work whether you know them or not. And so we've all heard, uh, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Well, ignorance of principle is no protection from the consequences of violating the principle mm-hmm. just because you didn't know it. <laughs> so so it, it, it's really important to dig in and get a deep understanding of principles. So to just walk us through, whether it's one that you really just love and bite into each day or all seven, so as we drive around and do the work of our lives, that we can okay. we can expand and, our, our uh, you know acceptance you know of these what? seven. I would, I would love, and, I, and I, don't, I don't know if you do repeat guests or, or whatever, but I would love to talk in your whole podcast sometime, talk through all seven, because... And and I'll, I'll give you a piece of one, but I got to I got to tell you, you'll think this is funny. When the Traveler's Gift came out, I didn't know how horrified I was going to be to do these television shows yes. that would ask me. It, it, you know, you go on Good Morning America, and Robin Roberts says, "Well, tell us the seven decisions." Yes, <laughs> and you go, "Okay," because they don't sound like much. I'm telling you, you know, you persist without exception. Ooh, I never heard that. That's oh, groundbreaking. Take action. And I'll give you an example. Here's here's one, and that's uh, one is responsibility. Um, that's certainly one we we hear about all the time. We hear it over and over again, and people think they have a grasp on it because there's two very uh, very serious extremes on responsibility that people feel. One one extreme is until these people accept responsibility for where they are, these people are never going to be able to accomplish. And mm-hmm. you, and you got the other extreme going, but it's not their fault. Don't you understand what their parents were like? And and so it, you have people leaning on one side or the other. 
And you can't hear a newscast, a sports, you can't hear anything yes. without, without that word. And yet, people do not understand its, its harnessable power. It, so here's a very brief explanation. Responsibility is not about uh, blaming people uh, for where they are or making people feel bad about where they're from. Responsibility is about hope and control. And who doesn't want to have hope for a greater future they can control? You know, but if, but if, you, if you blame your mom, if you blame the economy, if you blame your neighbor, your, your spouse, if you, if you blame the president, you know, there's not, not a lot of hope there That's right. because there's zero control. You know, if, if, if you've ended up in a horrible place and it really is your wife's fault, I, I mean, I don't know about you, I can't control my wife. No, I have I have no control over that yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, what are we going to do about my wife? And and so if if some you know if I've ended up in this horrible place and it's my wife's fault or if it's the president's fault or the economy's fault, I, well, I might as well jump off a cliff. What am I going to do? Okay, but if I can look in the mirror and I can say, you know, I've had some crazy things happen in my life. I've I've had some tragedies happen, and I couldn't control any of them, but I've made choices in response to those crazy things that have led my life right down a path to a place I don't like. If you can understand and believe you can make choices that will lead you to a place you don't like, it's great news. Because if you can understand and believe you can make choices that lead you to a place you don't like, doesn't it make logical sense? You yes. could also make choices that would lead you to a place you do like. And, the, and that's the game, is make better choices. And that's what the other seven decisions are about about grabbing hold of that. And Andy, I'm always inviting our followers to grab onto one takeaway during interviews during these podcasts. And, and man, I hope they heard loud and clear the great gift and the control and the hope that they possess in their own lives to be responsible, not not for what mom and dad did or what Trump is doing or Hillary might have done, but what, what we can do each day going forward. And so, I, man, I appreciate the reminder from you and the traveler's gift it's not the only book you've written. I think you've written almost two dozen now. You've got one out right now called The Little Things. I, you know, man, I'm always curious. Why do you write the books you do? And so specifically, why do you write The Little Things? <laughs> you know, what are you creating? You know, Da Vinci, when he painted the Mona Lisa, he did it with the smallest paintbrush available at the time. And they, they, you know, his, even his peers said, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, you're killing yourself. It'll take you forever to do this. And you've you, you got to make a living here. Why are you painting with that? And he said, because I am creating a masterpiece. And, of course, today, it, we all know the Mona Lisa. You, you go to the Louvre and look at the Mona Lisa, and even with a magnifying glass, you cannot discern individual brush strokes. It was is that delicate, is that powerful, is that unbelievable? And he was creating a masterpiece. And so, what are you creating with your life, with your business, with with your family? What are you creating? You're creating something. And at the end of it all, whether you have created a masterpiece or a disaster, the fact is, it will have been done. One decision at a time, one day at a time, one choice at a time, one tiny brush stroke at a time. It, and so I started finding these little things that made massive differences. And honestly, John, 18 months ago, I realized 
that because uh, we ha- I had spread out on my desk a lot of clients, a lot of the things uh, because I knew I had to help clients businesses double and triple, and really unbelievable success. And we we had had one go from uh, they had 19 years to get to 5.4 billion, and I started working with them, and in a year they went to 11.2 billion mm-hmm. over. Over uh, 100% in business volume in a year, and I realized that the little things that I had figured out that was making some of this happen, I didn't have any of it written down. And I thought, man, if I croak, I have to, <laughs> I have yes. two boys, and my boys would never know how this all happened with the coaches, with you know, with the teams, with the and and I I said I gotta write this down, so I started documenting it and. And that's what I so I wrote the book. It's, it's it's out right now. It just came out. It's the little things why you really should sweat the small stuff. Andy, when you write a book like this, I understand that you're trying to capture your value as a speaker and a writer, and you're trying to relate to your boys how to do life and leadership and right. all aspects a little bit better. When a business owner, a sales lady, uh, a stay-at-home dad, whomever. A podcaster. When someone reads this book, what's one thing you hope they heard and read loud and clear? One thing they will see loud and clear is that if you want incredible results, you've got to understand it will not it will not happen doing what you've been doing or doing what your industry does. Uh, in fact. I tell clients, what I tell clients, I say, look, here's what I do. Uh, You're going to have to think with me because what I do is I help people compete at a level their competition doesn't know there's a game going on. It's easier to do than you think because everybody competes the same way. I don't care if you're in real estate, if you're in insurance, I don't care if you own a string of pharmacies, I don't, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you play football. Everybody competes the same way. And because they compete the same way, it's easy to find little things that make massive differences, that, that, and, it, and it comes from looking in the other direction. I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a huge. Uh, this is, your business people, I think, would get a kick out of this, John. Uh, a huge revelation to me, and it is to most people in business, is that um, customer satisfaction is is, is kind of BS. It's uh, uh, it, it's certainly as a goal, it's one of the worst goals a company can have. And yet, so many companies use customer satisfaction as their benchmark. They'll use it as their their branding motto. They're, I mean, they put it on billboards. You know, here at Long Lewis Ford, we <laughs> uh, we're home of the satisfied customer. You know, right? Customer satisfaction is job one. Let me tell you. Let me tell you something. The truth is. The customer satisfaction is the lowest bar you can possibly hit and still stay in business. Any, anything, anything less than that, you're in trouble. 
And so to shoot for customer satisfaction, are you kidding me? Look, the greatest advertisement you can possibly have is what? Word of mouth. It's, It's word of mouth. Word of mouth trumps everything. And so fantastic, unbelievable, raving fans uh, word of mouth of, about you and your business. This word of mouth trumps. It, 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 your competitors cannot possibly traditionally advertise against incredible yes. word of mouth. Now they can advertise against satisfied customers because here's the satisfied customer. Hey, you went and uh, you you bought a Ford from Long Lewis, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Oh, we're looking to buy a Ford. Was every, so? How was your experience there? Good. Everything go good. Yeah. So you're 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 happy with with the way everything went? Oh yeah. No problems? No, it, it was fine. Well, there you go. There's your satisfied. Right. Very customer. lukewarm. Yeah, and you know, satisfied customers, they're thinking, I better be satisfied. I paid for it. I mean, do you, do you think you're getting extra points for satisfying them? And so, so listen, listen. Here's the cool thing. Is, is that, that, that raving fans, is this unbelievable word of mouth, it cannot be advertised against, but bad word of mouth, you couldn't pour enough money into that hole to, to bring yourself out of it. But you have to create word of mouth, and it will not be done with your product or your price. And yet that is how everybody competes, price and product. It will be something different, and it will involve you. How many of us have have? You just think, think as you're listening to this. How many, how many of you have uh, paid more for a product than you had to? You you could have bought it for less, but you decided to pay more. Well, that's all of us. How many of you have gone to more trouble to get something than you had to? Well, all of us. If you look at that, it seems like an incredibly stupid thing to do, and yet we have all done it. I don't care what the product you think it is. I don't care what industry you are in. The product is you. Well, as I'm hearing you going on about the customer service and uh, the challenge to every business owner and every business leader and every hospital employee and every school teacher listening, it's clear it's not just at work we need to hear, hear these words, but at home. You know, the story earlier about Da Vinci, it's a reminder to wake up and to realize we're painting a masterpiece. And that uh, 100% customer satisfaction may keep you married or it may keep you alive, but it won't delight and turn on the men and women that we do life with. Andy, I want to take you through seven questions that we have asked every guest since the Live Inspired episodes first began. Uh, And it begins with this. And you ought to have an answer for this one. (laughs) What's the best book you've ever read? I I would probably say Greatest Salesman in the World. Right. Awesome. Ogmandino. Yep. Uh, It probably changed as much as any... Other book, leadership, self-help type book, changed my life as well. well. Yeah. Tomorrow, Andy, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, brother, with millions. What would you do with this newfound wealth? I would probably buy timberland with it. I would be very quiet about it. Uh-huh. Because I know, uh, you know, right now that I'm, I, I might be uh, mentally and emotionally able to handle that but most people are not and i would probably buy timberland and be quiet about it and use that timberland to be a self-sustaining way of uh you know helping people just becoming valuable 
with charitable organizations that I thought needed to be helped. Brother, if your house caught fire and all living things, including animals, uh, are out, your wife, your children, everybody's out, all the thing, all, all the animals are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing, what would you run back in and grab? My mama's Bible. Why? Because my mama used her Bible. Um, and she, that Bible is like beat up. I, you know, I remember the Bible because when I was a kid and not paying attention in church, I loved that Bible because it had some pictures. I had a picture of David and Goliath that I thought was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And a picture of Noah's Ark. And there's some color pictures in this Bible. And my mom would let me look at it. And now um, I look at that and I see there's notes written. There's mm. underlying things. They're all through it. And, you know, when when your mom dies at 19, there's a ton of things. Mm. I mean, you, you think of medical exams, John. People say, so what are your medical history of your family? I have no clue. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, your, ni- your mom dies at 19. There's tons of stuff you didn't ask because you don't care. And and so now I can go through my mom's Bible and I can see, I can get a a, a a good idea of my mom's thinking. Does she in that Bible, Andy? Does she talk at all about not only little Andy but specifically cancer and sickness and uh, and the the coming death? Uh, there was one there was one point that uh, she wrote. Um, God does, and I saw this, and I've always remembered this. She wrote in there, uh, God does not have to heal me to prove to me who he is. I am fine. With that one, we are going to shift gears on who sounds like an amazing woman, and I'm glad you ran in and got your mama's Bible. How cool. Uh, If you could sit on a bench, here comes your, uh, your dinner question. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day, Andy, and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have that conversation with? You know, that is your way, John, of asking me the question that I struggled with when I was writing The Traveler's Gift. Yes. And I'll tell you where I struggled with it. I struggled with it with the Abraham Lincoln because I, I didn't know if I wanted Abraham Lincoln in that particular place or Winston Churchill in that particular place. I ended up uh, putting Abraham Lincoln in that particular place, and then I, I wrote a kind of a, an ongoing, a sort of a years, years, years later sequel yes. to the Traveler's Gift called The Final Summit. And the, in The Final Summit, Winston Churchill is the key character in that book. So I was able to use both of them, but after years of thinking about that, Winston Churchill would be my guy. So what, what's the best advice that Churchill or anyone else has ever given Andy Andrews? The best advice Churchill gave me, I, I said earlier, and that was, you know, no matter how beautiful the strategy, occasionally, you really need to look at the results. But um, the best advice the longest last, and I'm just talking about just personal advice. You know, I'm not talking about our spiritual lives, or but the best advice that I ever got that I have unpacked for 35 years and am continuing to unpack is the old man Jones 
Um, yes. You know, the book about him, you know, is a book called The Noticer. And that book, I, I, it just told the real story of me under the pier and that old man. And and he said something to me one day, because I don't know what you were like when you were 23, John, but I knew everything. I knew everything. I would interrupt and I'd tell you, yeah, okay, I, but but listen to me, because I've been thinking this. And yeah, I know you you say that, but here's what I think. And I knew everything. And one day he he said, you want to be careful with that, that thinking thing. That can be dangerous. And I said, what? He said, most people live their entire lives and never understand you can't believe everything you think. Mm. And that, I've been unpacking that for 35 years, and that has produced an un- because you can't believe everything you think. That has been, I don't, I don't say it that way when I talk to somebody who is in first place, but I mean, literally, you think about it. You think about sitting with Nick Saban and yeah, I would like to help, but I played football in the sixth grade. I mean, he already knows he's the best. He knows he he may be the best in history, and he knows it. You know, he's not arrogant about it. He's a great guy, but he knows it. And so when you are in first place that solidly, how do you work with somebody who they've already, they're where they are because of what they know, and they know more than anybody else? Hmm. And that's another conversation because that that's a that's a cool conversation at some point. Uh, so, and we I look forward to having it. So let's go through two more questions and then launch our listeners and you, Andy, back into life. What what would you tell your twenty year old self? I would tell my 20, 20 year old self, be patient. Be patient. God is under no obligation to tell you what He's doing in your life, and. Though you may be angry with him, though you may not understand him, though you may wish he did things in a different way, though you may think he has left you, if you just remember what has happened, if you look behind you, you will see his hand on your shoulder every step of the way. Mm. Calm down. Well, man, it's good advice, I think, for a 20-year-old boy about to live under the pier to hear but i think it's great advice for every one of our listeners to hear loud and clear today so andy here's my final question and it's a little bit out of left field man but uh that's where you and i kind of live so i think you're ready for it (laughs) it's been said andy andrews that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence how would you want your one sentence to read well that's a good question if on my tombstone it said uh, it can be a compound sentence, right? <laughs> I don't even know what that is, so yes. Okay, just roll with it, baby. Okay, if only Tombstone had said, he was a great father and husband and friend, comma, he followed his heart, and he provided value for his fellow man. That would be it. Andy Andrews, author of more than 20 books, including most recently, The Little Things, Why You Really Should Sweat the Small Stuff. My friend, you are a great husband, father, friend, son, I would add, who has indeed followed his heart, and you have provided great value 
for your fellow citizens. My friend, it's been a joy having you on our, our podcast. Buddy, thank you so much. We are very fortunate to have you in the air and on the air, John. You are a, a, a big part of the day uh, of the week of so many people, and we appreciate so much all you bring to us. Well, Andy, keep writing, keep speaking, keep uh, praying, keep living, man. You make a difference. Thank you for being with us, my friends. That was Andy Andrews. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor right now and rate this show. Review the podcast. It's a quick way that helps get the word out. Yes, we may have just recently launched. We've already had more than 300,000 downloads. That is all you, by the way. It's word of mouth. That's you guys and you gals. Thank you for helping spread the word. Thanks for being awesome. And you can help us spread the word, inspire, and impact even more lives. So tell your neighbors, tell your colleagues, tell the folks in the back of church about the Live Inspired podcast. It's a great way to help us make a difference together. For this time, and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired.